Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Unjustly. My name is Stephanie and this is my co-host Sandy. Hello everyone. So we're actually having to do a retake of the first part of the story. Oopsies. Um, We think Sandy's daughter is responsible for this. Yeah, I was, after six hours of editing, (laughs) (laughs) I was completely done with it and I go to export it or something. Yeah, I go to export it and the whole half portion is completely missing and I don't know what happened. (laughs) Um, My daughter uses my computer for distance learning and my other daughter Mm. messes with absolutely everything. Um, So I don't know what happened. So here's take two. Somewhere along the way it disappeared. Um, And we're actually having to record in my living room instead of my Office. office, which is also weird because now my husband can hear me as we're recording and that's really awkward. <laughs> Everything is just going downhill, Everything guys. Everything <laughs> is awkward. Um, we just had neighbors move in across the like little way from me and they are doing a lot of construction. So you might hear some stuff going on in the background. This is really the best we can do at this point because recording in the office just sounded like we were actually in the construction site mm-hmm. with them. So here we go. So my story today is a different type of wrongful conviction, and it also happens to be local to San Diego, where we live. And when I first read about what happened to this man, I knew that this was something I wanted to learn more about. So this is the story of Alan Alter, a 71-year-old Vietnam War veteran who had been unlawfully committed to a California state hospital. His commitment to a California state hospital was found to be the result of a sequence of trickle-down oversights starting at the top with the state of California's Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation and Board of Parole hearings, all the way down to the local level with San Diego County DA's office and Public Defender's office. Sadly, the story is not just about a veteran whose liberties have been taken away from him for more than two decades, or about the historical misunderstandings surrounding care for those with severe PTSD and mental illnesses. It's possibly more importantly about the possibility that there are others like Alan still out there who are currently being held illegally under the same state program that Alan was held under due to a lack of oversight. That program is the Mentally Disordered Offender Program, also referred to as MDO. In 1986, the state of California enacted the Mentally Disordered Offender Law, its purpose being to protect society from certain inmates with dangerous but treatable severe mental disorders and to provide treatment for those inmates in the most appropriate setting. The designation has significant consequences for inmates, including often being initially paroled to a state hospital rather than straight to the community. The MDO program was created to hold criminal offenders in California state hospitals past their parole dates if the state determined that they posed a risk to themselves or to society. According to the state law that created the program, offenders who qualify to be involuntarily committed to a state hospital past their parole dates have committed certain quote-unquote qualifying offenses or crimes of force or violence. Alan Alter's offense was not listed as a qualifying offense, yet he was admitted into the program back in 1997 and his involuntary commitment has been extended each year through 2020. State officials have said that at the time of his commitment, the law was unclear and that they believed his offense qualified him for the program. The series of mistakes in his case has resulted in the San Diego County DA and Public Defender's Office announcing that they will be reviewing hundreds of cases dating back to the late 80s to ensure no one else has fallen through the same cracks. Allen was born in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and always seemed to have an easy time with his grades in athletics. In 1968, at the age of 19, Allen enlisted with the U.S. Marine Corps and was dispatched to fight in the Vietnam War. Two years later, when he returned to the U.S., his brother Mark could see the detrimental effect the war had had on Allen. Sadly, the man who had gone to Vietnam was not the same one that returned two years later. 
His brother recalls that the Marines had not had many places to put all of the troops upon their return, so many had been let out early to return home. Mark thinks this might have been a mistake as it didn't allow Alan time to unwind or unplug from what had been going on in his life. Throughout the 70s and 80s, Alan's family stated he would wander from place to place, which would be documented by scattered, nonviolent run-ins with police in Alaska, Hawaii, and Georgia. Eventually, Alan was diagnosed with PTSD and schizophrenia, which his family believed stemmed from his war trauma. Rather than seeking help, his family says Alan would wander a lot and had trouble assimilating back into daily life. Alan's trying to deal with things on his own would eventually lead to him being incarcerated. In 1986, a small fire in San Diego County would put Alan down the path of his eventual decades-long confinement and out of reach from his loved ones. California Highway Patrol officers and firefighters for the Lakeside Fire Department were called out on the morning of March 16, 1968 to Highway 67 after reports of a small brush fire in the highway median. Upon arriving, firefighters saw Alan, who was 36-year-old at the time, standing by. So that's what started this whole thing a brush fire on this on in the middle of the freeway not the milk sorry it wasn't in the middle of the freeway it was on this like the emergency lane Mm -hmm. like in the middle of the two sides of the freeway Mm -hmm. he had started a brush fire the firefighters would later testify that the fire was only about four feet by four feet Mm -hmm. so So it's small it was a small fire and that it hadn't spread to any vehicles or properties in the area When he was asked by firefighters, Alan, who according to their testimony had been making incoherent statements, admitted to having been the one to start the fire. So there was no real reason, I guess, at that point. It it definitely wasn't like a fire that was started maliciously Mm -hmm. or with the intent to hurt or set anything on fire. Uh His family believes that his intentions were never to harm anyone, but he was eventually arrested for unlawfully starting a fire on forest land. His brother believes he had started the fire to get the attention of someone driving by to help him get off the freeway. So he oh. thinks he ended up in the middle of the freeway okay. and was trying to seek signal for help. help. Mm-hmm. And so that's why he started the fire. But again, like the fact that firefighter testimony says that he was making incoherent statements kind of shows that he probably just wasn't in the right state of mind. Mm-hmm. His felony charge led to a guilty plea and a sentence of one year in jail, followed by five years probation. I'm sorry, was it a felony charge because they said it was on forest forest land? land. Even though it was the freeway. Okay. Anyone who knows San Diego knows the lakeside, like where the 67 is, it's kind of rural area. Mm-hmm. It's, it's you know, especially in the in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Right now that you've got more of a development, you've got San Marcos and I think the 67 goes out to Santee, but this was obviously like in the lakeside area. Okay. We'll post pictures because there is a picture of what the freeway looked like at the time. Okay. The judge who accepted his plea deal stated that even if the surrounding area hadn't burned, the smoke danger to the vehicles traveling on the highway added an element of seriousness to the allegation. After serving his time for the fire, he was released on parole, but in 1996, after wandering again, court records show that Allen did not show up to one of his last parole hearings. Police would eventually catch up to him, and he was back behind bars after being ordered to serve Two years in state prison, only this time his sentence was carried out differently. A year into his two-year prison sentence, court records show that Allen was admitted into a Tascadero State Hospital under the MDO program. Allen was recommended for commitment under the MDO program after an evaluation by the State Board of Parole Hearings concluded that it was in Mr. Alter's best interest and in the interest of the public safety. 
When his parole termination date approached in 2000, a leader from Atascadero State Hospital's medical director at the time recommended involuntary confinement to be continued for Alan in the program. And so I went every year that followed for 24 years. That's a really That's long crazy. time. So they review it every year so again to see if he's year, okay to and be let out. Every year they just, they kept extending it. Isn't that crazy? 24 for starting, times it's happened then. For starting a fire. Mm-hmm. And then, and then for not showing up to one of his last parole hearings. But it, the last time, so what ended up putting him back in jail was mm-hmm. that he didn't show up to his last, one of his last parole hearings, mm-hmm. but it wasn't because he was doing anything bad. He was a wanderer with a lot of issues, was mm-hmm. a drifter. So it was just like, he just wasn't in the area, probably forgot and just didn't go. But it's not like he was found doing something illegal and mm-hmm. then he ended up back in jail. It was just, he just didn't show up. However, his offense of unlawfully starting a fire was neither violent nor listed as a qualifying offense under the MDO law at the time of his commitment in 1997. While both the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation and San Diego County DA's office agree that his offense does not qualify under the MDO law now, both agencies said that it was not clear at the time of his commitment. It wasn't until 2003 that the State Court of Appeals issued a ruling in the case of people versus Rudolph Hayes, a case with similar circumstances to Allen's, that the court affirmed that Hayes' offense of unlawfully starting a fire was not a qualifying crime under MDO law. It also concluded that legislature did not intend to include recklessly causing a fire among the offenses that qualify for commitment. Allen's defense attorney, Rod Jones, who also represented Rudolph Hayes in that 2003 appeals case, disagrees with the San Diego DA's stance stating that the offense of unlawfully starting a fire was never a qualifying MDO offense. So it seems like there's a lot of back and forth on like, Mm -hmm. it was, no, it wasn't, or it wasn't clear. But if it wasn't clear, why did you just assume that it was? Yeah, that's true too. But once they've made it clear, why didn't they just then go back? That's a problem. So it was that this... Um, ruling in 2003 is what confirmed that it wasn't. Mm-hmm. But then from 2003 to 2020, nothing happened in Alan's case. Wow. Yeah. So no one went back to go get him. Nope. So we'll get into that okay. right now. Despite the 2003 appeals court ruling, records show that neither the state's board of parole hearings, prosecutors in the DA's office, nor the public defender appointed to represent Allen ever caught this acknowledgement of the existing law during his annual MDO program reviews, and Allen continued to stay involuntarily confirmed to state hospitals. Mm-hmm. Sadly, in response to questions about Allen's case, the DA's office said, that prosecutors do not, as a matter of course, review the law or relitigate original charges when filing yearly MDO commitment petitions. But the people that were reevaluating every single year, they're not given this information? No. Okay. So I think the people who are evaluating are evaluating him based on his like, mental state right then and there. Basically. Okay. And not whether or not he should have been there or not in right. the first place. And it really does fall on his public defender who just mm. failed to realize that there was this court ruling in 2003 that would have qualified mm-hmm. his client, Conviction? his his like client. Oh. Right. Mark Alter, Allen's brother, said that he had tried repeatedly to contact the state hospitals where Allen was confined in hopes of scheduling a visit, but despite multiple attempts, his calls were never returned, and the state hospital staff would forget to send him instructions on planning visitations. Oh. He felt all hope had been lost until the fall of 2020, so literally this past fall, when he received a call from a criminal defense attorney, Patrick Dudley. 
Dudley had been appointed to represent Allen, and after researching his case, he came to the conclusion that Allen should have never been committed under the MDO program to begin with. Dudley was contacted in 2019 by the County Public Defender's Office after realizing that the public defender who had represented Allen had made an error in not catching the qualifying offense provision and therefore resulting in a conflict of interest if they were to continue representing him. Dudley says he was in shock after reviewing every record, every case, and every probation report tied to Allen's case. He says, when I see someone like that who's a hero, who's an American hero who comes back and is struggling with mental illness, and then instead of dealing with that mental illness head on, he's just kind of put aside, it was very clear that this was a mistake, and it was a mistake that no one caught. Yeah, I'm sad. It's so crazy that stuff like this just happens. And I'm sure he's not the only one. That's the thing about this. It's Mm -hmm. like now that this case has kind of come up and that people are like shedding light on it, it's Mm -hmm. like how many other people might not have fallen through the cracks just Mm -hmm. like he did. Dudley then filed a habeas corpus petition with a San Diego judge in October 2020 declaring Allen had manifestly deficient counsel since the public defender hadn't caught the qualifying offense provision back in 1997 when he was admitted into the program in the first place, and the judge agreed. Then, on January 7th of 2021, after being committed to a state hospital unlawfully for 8,711 days under the MDO program, Allen was a free man. Allen is now getting care from the Veterans Village of San Diego, a program contracted through the VA. In the first hours of Allen's freedom, his brother Mark had to explain to him all of the advancements in everyday life, that most people would take for granted, such as phones that have compasses and cameras in them and the ability to take photos without film. Hmm. Isn't that so crazy? Like how much hasn't changed since 1997? Yeah, it's a And you world. have no idea of that. To celebrate Alan's freedom, Mark took his brother on a drive through San Diego County's countryside and over to Julian where Alan asked for a slice of apple pie oh. since it had been about 30 years since his last slice. Oh, man. Isn't that so sweet? That is sweet. We go to Julian every year. I can't even imagine. Not we definitely take it for, take it for granted. Years. Yeah. Wow. Deputy Press Secretary for the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, Terry Thornton, said that it is the CDCR's position that in 1997, when it performed Allen's MDO evaluation, his crime was a qualifying offense. He then proceeded to say that after this evaluation, Allen had been released to the Department of State Hospitals and no longer under their jurisdiction, to which the Department of State Hospitals said, it's determining the qualifying offense is the jurisdiction of the Board of Parole Hearings and the Superior Court, not DSH. So is anyone even surprised that something like this happened and that there could be others like Alan still confined? I mean, mm-hmm. no one wants to take responsibility for mm-hmm. what happened to this man. It's just a back and forth of like, whose fault is it? Right. That's awful. The review by the Public Defender's Office will include 125 cases dating back to the office's creation in 1988. Additionally, the DA's office says it too will review all individuals currently in the court ordered MDO program and all state hospital commitments in place at this time to confirm that they are appropriate. They also added that the deputy DAs have been instructed to review underlying offenses when filing such commitment petitions in the future. Like, why wasn't this happening already? Yeah, (laughs) it's a little too late. Since November of 2020, NBC7, who has been leading the investigation, has filed numerous public record requests which state local agencies seeking a comprehensive list of all people committed to a state hospital under the MDO program statewide since its formation in 1986, including the person's qualifying offense. 
the California Department of Corrections, Department of State Hospitals, and California Correctional Healthcare Services pointed to one agency that stores all the information, the California Board of Parole Hearings. And a spokesperson for the board has stated that they are working on locating those records, but has not given a date on when they plan to release them. In response to how the mistake hadn't been caught for so many years, the DA's office said, Defense counsel had the ability to notify the court about the change in the law, but unfortunately did not. It's clear the system broke down without that information, and as a result, Mr. Alter's defense attorneys, prosecutors, and the court all agreed for several years with the doctor's continuing recommendations to extend Mr. Alter's hospital treatment. So really, it's like they're all blaming it on mm-hmm. his defense attorney, his mm-hmm. public defender, for not bringing it up, which, okay, I get yeah. that, but like we've talked about before, public defenders t- take on a lot of cases. Oh, yeah. He probably didn't even remember that he had that case. They're Probably didn't overwhelmed even know. with cases and little resources. There's no way they can keep track of everything that everything happens in every single on. case they've had. To me, it's a little crazy that like for 24 years, they just kept extending his his like stay, his mm-hmm. commitment. Like that's just crazy. And we'll, we'll get into it. But to me, it just seems like such a slippery slope between yeah. like, okay, even if this person has schizophrenia, does that mean that everyone who has schizophrenia or who has PTSD should then be committed to a state hospital? for years on end because there's a possibility they might do something like mm-hmm. that's that's not how it works it's not how it works we no. can't just keep people behind bars or in state hospitals because they're meant they have some sort of mental illness you treat them and then uh-huh. you let them go or provide programs a continue on a continuous basis whether yeah. it's a therapy or whatever the case is but this like is all it's involuntary <sighs> you know like yeah. you can't that's like when they were just sending women to Yeah, for hysteria. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Psychologists contracted by the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation are tasked with reviewing patients in the MDO program each year to see if their mental illness has improved or if they still remain a potential danger to the public. A 2020 research paper titled MDO Evaluation in California highlighted both strengths and weaknesses of the state program and law and concluded that the best step forward includes de-emphasizing the role of mental illness in assessment of future danger. The research paper acknowledges that societies have to deal with the challenge of differentiating those behaviors which break the rules of their society and call for punishment of the offender, as opposed to behavior which reflects a disturbed mind and therefore calls for mental health treatment or at the very least criminal leniency. So I think it's important that we take a closer look at the MDO law and program to really understand how this happened and why it's very likely to continue happening if changes are not made. So I'm going to be using and referencing that research paper a lot because they're really the only paper out there right now that's taken any kind of closer look at MDO law and the MDO program. Although the basic framework of the MDO program is sensible and morally justifiable, it's also appropriate and necessary to reconsider the factors that are assessed in the process and how those factors are assessed and how that information is used. The MDO law has two primary purposes, to protect society from prisoners who have dangerous but treatable severe mental disorders, and to provide treatment for those prisoners. Treatment and secure housing are provided by the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, aka CDCR, and the Department of State Hospitals, DSH. California law requires that every inmate receives a mental health evaluation within a year of their first incarceration. This evaluation then becomes the basis for initial treatment and referral for a thorough assessment of the inmate's possible qualification for MDO status. The qualification requires that the inmate meets all six criterion. So these are the six 
things that are used to to determine whether someone qualifies. And they assess every single inmate in California for this? Mm-hmm. Whoa. Right. That seems like a really big undertaking. Yeah. Yeah. You would think so, right? Yeah. So the first one is that the inmate has committed a qualifying violent crime. The second one, that the inmate has a qualifying severe mental disorder. The third is that the inmate's mental disorder was the cause of or at least a significant factor in the crime. The fourth, that the inmate has received treatment in a prison for at least 90 days. The fifth one, that the inmate is not in full remission from the disorder or cannot be kept in remission without treatment. And six, that the inmate represents a substantial danger of physical harm to other people because of his or her disorder. After the initial assessment, he or she must be recertified every year. And so the issue is the first one, the first criteria that he didn't meet, that it was a violent act. Right. In his case specifically, Mm -hmm. the unlawfully starting a fire Mm -hmm. would not have qualified as a qualifying event. Okay. An important condition of MDO status is that it requires the inmate continues to receive mental health treatment as an involuntary inpatient until he or she no longer meets the criterion for that status or can be safely treated on an outpatient basis. So what this means in practice is that if an MDO inmate reaches the end of their determinate sentencing, a specific amount of time designated by the courts for incarceration for a particular crime, and still requires inpatient treatment, he or she may be kept in a locked facility with the CDCR or DSH until they are deemed safe to be treated on an outpatient basis and released to the community. But this raises a number of criminological, psychological, and even ethical questions as a fundamental human rights issue is raised, which is whether it is ever okay to hold a prisoner longer than the sentence assigned by the original court. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. Like That makes sense. If the court already said this is what your sentence is, right? Why now then can this program for over twenty years? Right. If it is okay, under what circumstances, and how can a person be properly assessed to determine those circumstances? And lastly, how those circumstances can be changed so that a person can and should be released. In the context of the MDO program, the question is whether it's okay to hold people in custody beyond their assigned sentence if their mental disorder makes them an ongoing public safety risk. This issue used to be considered under the label of criminally insane. However, it's important to differentiate MDO from criminal insanity. Historically, this concept referred to anyone who was deemed by society to be insane and committed a crime as a result of that insanity. Currently, criminally insane refers to people who have committed crimes, typically quite violent ones, who have been found not guilty by reason of insanity or to be unfit to stand trial. They are too violent and dangerous to be let go, so they are involuntarily committed to mental hospitals and can be kept there as long as they are still considered sick and dangerous. But MDO status individuals are different in that they have been convicted of a crime in a court of law, but it is deemed that their mental illness was a significant factor in the commission of violence, and thus they should be treated for their mental illness, and it should continue to be considered as a determining factor in placement and parole decisions. So it's not like when someone commits a murder for example Mm -hmm. and then they plead insanity Mm -hmm. and then they're sent to like a a hospital to be treated there Mm -hmm. because they are not fit to stand trial the group of people who are admitted to mdo are not people who have been deemed unfit to stand trial because of their mental illness Mm -hmm. they're just people who have been convicted of a crime 
but who the court believes that their mental illness had a part in why they committed the crime and so they just need extra help so it's Mm -hmm. it's different but that difference also leads them down this path of mdo in the state of california Mm -hmm. which means even though they've served their time they can still get this extended sentence yeah which is just crazy to me it sounds like the intention to begin with was good right the way they carried it out and the way that they structured the program was not messy uh-huh it's just subjective mm-hmm. we'll get into like why it's subjective okay. but it just doesn't seem like there's like you can ever be certain mm-hmm. and so then that like leads to this whole other issue of like well if we can't be certain and these parameters that we've set doesn't guarantee that the right people are going into the program mm-hmm. then wh- why does it exist yeah type of thing Although, again, like, yes, the the idea of the program is good because it's this idea of keeping people, violent people off the streets. And at the same time, not treating them as criminals and keeping them in prison for the rest of their life because the issue is treatable. Right. But then for how long? Like, <laughs> yeah. like I don't know. It's just hard because you're not the judge. Yeah. Yeah. 20 years is a long That's time. A long like, time. at that point, let's let's figure out something else, yeah. guys. So to better understand the program, let's take a look at the six determining criteria. One, does the inmate have a severe mental disorder? Two, did the inmate commit a violent crime? Three, did the severe mental disorder cause the crime? Four, is the mental disorder in remission and can it be kept in remission? Five, has the inmate been receiving treatment for the disorder? And then lastly, six, is the inmate still at risk to be violent because of the disorder? So in regard to the first... The definition of severe mental disorder is an illness or disease or condition that substantially impairs the person's thought, perception of reality, emotional process or judgment, or which grossly impairs behavior, or that demonstrates evidence of an acute brain syndrome for which prompt remission in the absence of treatment is unlikely. The approved list of mental disorders notably does not include personality disorders, adjustment disorders, epilepsy, mental retardation, other developmental disabilities, or substance abuse. And this is interesting as many people would assume correctly that personality disorders, especially antisocial personality disorder, and substance abuse disorders, especially alcohol abuse, are mental disorders and could be shown to be strongly related to violent crime. Mm-hmm. So, the, And mm-hmm. all of those are not considered part of this program. Interesting. In regard to the second, there is also a specific list of crimes which can be considered and naturally almost all of them include elements of violence, such as assault with a deadly weapon. There are others that are more difficult to evaluate as qualifying, such as vandalism, trespassing, or DUI when there is violence involved. Even more tricky is the fact that the offense does not have to involve actual violence, but includes threats or even implied threats of violence. There was a case where the defendant had broken into an unoccupied building in the middle of the night and accidentally started a fire. The violent crime criterion was found to be met by a number of evaluators because the fire that was set could have spread to other buildings where people could have been hurt. Many people would find this stretches the definition of a violent crime. You could do that for literally anything. Anything. Literally anything. The third criterion is even more difficult to evaluate. The question of how an inmate's mental disorder impacted the commission of a crime is often difficult to answer. To what extent, if any, does a person's mental illness impact criminal activity, primarily motivated what? Primarily motivated by a desire for money, sex, revenge, or other factors associated with criminality, but not necessarily mental illness? 
This question is further complicated when, one, there are no records available that address the mental state of the offender. Two, the inmate claims that he was not experiencing symptoms of mental illness at the time of the crime. Three, if the inmate claims that he does not remember the incident or denies he was guilty. And four, the symptoms of mental illness may have been a very small factor or simply exacerbated by other factors such as substance abuse or homelessness. Mm -hmm. The fourth criterion actually involves two factors, the level of remission of this inmate's mental illness and their ability to maintain that remission in a less controlled environment, namely being on parole in the community. Remission is an interesting concept, though, because it refers to the reduction or outright elimination of symptoms related to a mental disorder. Symptoms of mental disorder tend to wax and wane over the course of time. How much often depends on what mental disorder is being considered. Schizophrenia, for instance, has such profound natural changes in the presence of symptoms that we think in terms of phases of the disease, including the prodromal, active, and residual. Another difficulty is the fact that many mental illnesses are unlikely to go away entirely, with no symptoms whatsoever. Part of the challenge in MDO evaluation is that the criterion is stated as remission with few specific guidelines for what an adequate level of remission actually is. Mm -hmm. The only one provided is that remission needs to have been present for at least a year. If an inmate has been moved multiple times over the last year, not only should this be expected to affect their level of remission as they adjust to a new setting, but often results in poor records regarding level of remission, especially from institutions that may not specialize in providing mental health service. Mm -hmm. That's a mess. It's all a mess. It's so crazy. The other part of remission criterion involves the ability of the inmate to remain in remission without treatment. Please note that the concept of treatment means with a highly controlled setting in prison or a state hospital. The challenge is to assess how likely it is that the inmate would successfully remain in remission and not be a physical threat to others. This is very subjective in nature with a number of factors to consider and is finally a judgment call. There are no specific, truly objective criterion to measure or to reach a decision. The fifth criterion is relatively straightforward. It regards the inmate's recent receipts of services. He must have been receiving mental health treatment for at least 90 days. So that's pretty easy to keep track of Mm because they're in state control. Mm -hmm. And the last criterion is an assessment of overall dangerousness. The question is whether the inmate's ongoing mental illness leads them to represent a substantial danger of physical harm to others. This question is answered by addressing six primary factors, history of violence, prior performance on supervised release, compliance with treatment, insight, remission, and environmental risk. A history of violence is the best-known predictor of future violence. It's much more questionable how strong the rest of the factors are. A poor history of performance on supervised release could easily be connected to either generally low functioning, such as someone who can't hold a job or Mm -hmm. maintain housing, or criminality, someone who's prone to get needs met in antisocial ways. The result of the assessment of these six areas are then tabulated in a numerical form, with a zero if the inmate does not meet the criterion and the number of the criterion if he did meet. It's important to note that inmates being considered for MDO status receive multiple assessments. The inmate is initially assessed by two doctors, one from CDCR and one from DSH. If the two assessments disagree, where one finds the inmate positive on all six and the other does not, then difference of opinion, which is like a group of people, they're called DOP, um, they exist and it's two independent evaluators, none of which are employees of CDCR or DSH, and they're brought in to break in the tie. 
If the evaluators do not find the inmate qualifies for MDO status, he is referred to an outpatient treatment clinic upon parole. If they do, the inmate may be sent to a DSH institution for further treatment, or they may be paroled to the community depending on the findings from the assessment and the conclusion of the board of parole hearing. So even if they were to all agree that this person should qualify for MDO status, they can still decide not to send them through the program and just let them out on parole mm-hmm. into the community. So it's like, how are you making that decision? <laughs> like you've got all these different criterions and like yeah. and different people, people in the process. who are assessing and doing yeah. this and doing that. But at the end of the day, like it still seems like it comes down to the board of parole hearings, whether or not they actually want to admit the person. So mm-hmm. it's just, I don't know, very finicky. The 2020 study identified three areas of challenge in the process that are important to highlight. The first is that the fundamental right of the state to detain people for extended periods of time based on a risk of possible future violence. The second is the issue of assessing dangerousness. There is a problem of connecting the risk of future violence with the presence of severe mental illness. There is a problem assessing certain criterion with an adequate level of reliability. And then there's another problem in deciding what mental disorders should qualify, especially regarding personality disorders and substance abuse. And then the third one is the difficulty and expense of treating severe mental disorders in a prison environment. Although there are issues regarding the appropriateness of detention to avoid future violence, the general appropriateness and goals of the MDO program are supportable. It can be concluded that it is fundamentally a good thing that society identifies and helps inmates who experience symptoms of severe mental illness, and it's a good thing that society takes measures to protect itself from violence, and sometimes that means that individuals should be detained who are particularly dangerous. So I think we can all agree Mm -hmm. on that, but those goods should always be balanced with other goods, including the fundamental right to freedom and non-coercion and desire, especially in what we call a free society to be given the benefit of the doubt. In other words, our power-based institutions should always err on the side of individual freedom because the risk of abuse based on the disparity of power between institutions and the individual is a risk that a risk and fear that is well-founded historically. This is a foundation of Western legal principle of being assumed innocent until proven guilty, and it was developed for a good reason. So this would basically be like getting rid of innocent until proven guilty and basically being guilty until proven innocent. Mm -hmm. And that's so much harder. Yes. Well-meaning people who become frustrated and upset about protections given to those accused and even convicted of crimes may not have been given enough thought to the ramifications of for society if we were, for instance, to reverse the protection principle and assume that the accused be guilty and require that they prove their innocence. It's important to consider that no goods or rights exist in a vacuum, unaffected by and therefore limited by other goods or rights. For instance, my right to do what I want with my personal property can easily run against your right not to be killed by another if I dump toxins on my property that will leach into the underground water and kill you if you drink it or eat it with plant or eat plants grown with it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So like my right to do what I want to do Mm -hmm. is only my right so long as I'm not harming other Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. The more specific and practical question then is, how dangerous does someone need to be in order to preventatively restrict their freedom? 
when otherwise they would be let go. Very few people would disagree with the idea that if it could be ascertained with 100% certainty that a person was about to kill an innocent victim, that it is moral and proper that the person be detained. This position purposely sidesteps the issue of other strategies being implemented to protect the potential victim. Obviously, other things can and should be done, including warning the person, offering them protection, etc. The question is not whether preventative detention is the only possibility, but whether it is one of the proper ones. The appropriateness of preventative detention becomes much trickier when the detaining power is a large governmental institution like the justice system and when there are serious questions about the validity and reliability of our current assessment system. A justice system which expands its focus from holding people responsible for acts already committed to preventative measures to avoid possible future acts should have a very high bar indeed. To justify the continued detention, whether we call it hospitalization or not, of an individual based on the possibility of future offense, there must be valid and reliable empirical evidence to support such action. And it just seems like right now we don't have that. Mm-hmm. But this program is still very much in existence. Yeah. And not many people even know about it. No. Or I'm assuming because we don't know about we it. Have no idea. I've never heard anyone talk about it. Uh-uh. It is this high bar concept that leads to a number of other issues. A primary one regards how well we assess future dangerousness. This issue is explored in an interesting way in the movie Minority Report. Do you remember that? I love that yeah. movie so much. So the premise is that certain people have this special power and can thus see a crime taking place before it actually happens, allowing the police to arrest the perpetrator before they even commit the offense. Mm -hmm. In the real world, of course, it's not that easy or clear cut. Assessing future violent recidivism is quite challenging. As with assessment of any future behavior, the conclusions are conditional and imprecise, often leading to questionable utility for decision-making. What you generally get with actuarial risk assessment is not a particular number, but placement within a set of wide, vague categories, like low, medium, and high risk. Do you remember that movie, Along Came Polly? Mm-hmm. You know how Ben Stiller was in, um, a risk assessor? Yeah. That's basically kind of one of the ways in which they look at all of this but it's really hard because they really do just have this category of low medium and high but within those categories there's so much more to it yeah it's hard to just say like well he's low or he's medium or he's high risk like is he high on the high risk is he Mm -hmm. low on the is like you know what i mean like it's hard i think it's so hard to do a risk assessment on an individual person when everyone is so different Mm -hmm. this is all based on assumptions yeah It's this lack of specificity that makes it even more difficult to make important decisions regarding placement and services, especially if those decisions are going to have a profound impact on someone's life and freedom. So risk assessment is this application of mathematical and statistical analysis to the likelihood of various future events based on the known current factors or aspects of the situation. This is different than what is typically referred to as a clinical assessment, which uses interviews and or psychological testing to help reach conclusions about psychological dynamics, diagnoses, and subsequent risk of engaging in various behaviors. Many psychologists rely heavily on this approach, but multiple studies have actually found that clinical judgment based on direct clinical interviewing is less reliable and valid than actuarial risk assessment. But again, like that kind of makes sense because when you're doing clinical assessments it's based on one person's assessment of Mm -hmm. you and that one person has uh, like experience and Mm -hmm. background and 
things that they've seen that maybe other people haven't. And so it's, again, everyone's assessment can vary, can vary. The problem is that despite its superiority to clinical assessment, the use of actuarial assessment is still not very robust in its predictive power. The focus of the MDO assessment is future risk of violence, but if we can't professionally provide a specific, valid, and reliable measure of risk, it does raise the question of the appropriateness of using such an assessment to make life-changing decisions, such on the principle of preventative incarceration. So, I mean, this is all just kind of bonkers to me. Like, again, like, I understand the program was done in, like, good, like, with good intentions, Mm -hmm. but... It just doesn't feel like there's a lot that just needs to be worked out. Another issue related to the need for a high bar of validity and reliability in our risk assessment is the appropriateness of the required areas of MDO evaluation. Do they make sense in drawing conclusions regarding the potential dangerousness of an inmate? The main factors utilized in MDO assessment of risk can be boiled down to A, the presence of a severe mental disorder and their related remission, B, the history of violence and prior performance on supervised release, and C, insight and compliance with treatment. In regard to A, we need to take a closer look at the connection between mental illness and violent criminality. The general public tends to believe that people with severe mental illness are dangerous. In 2006, a national survey found that 60% of respondents believed that people with schizophrenia were likely to be violent, and 32% believed that people with major depression were likely to be violent as well. These fears are grossly exaggerated and are driven by many factors, including misleading media representations of mental illness. The overwhelming majority of people with psychiatric illness are not violent. More than two-thirds of violent offenders do not have a mental illness, and offenders with mental illnesses are a heterogeneous group many of whose offending behaviors may be related to other criminogenic factors other than their mental illness, such as youth, maleness, poverty, substance abuse, deviant peers, childhood abuse, and neglect. And to the extent that mental illness impacts violent tendencies, the connection is weak, the threat is small, and the connection is often indirect and complex. It's been found that inmates with severe mental disorders are likely to recidivate than inmates without a mental disorder. As a corollary to this idea that there is really a very weak link between mental illness and violent criminality, it follows that it would not be accurate to identify such clinical issues as insight, cooperation with treatment, or remission as important factors in risk assessment. If the presence of a mental illness is itself not a highly important factor in violent crime, then whether or not it is in remission, how much insight the inmate has about it, and how cooperative he is in treatment are all very minor factors. Yet mental illness seems to be the main driving factor and like one of the main reasons why inmates end up in this program, Mm -hmm. even though the correlation between mental illness and violent crime seems to be very weak. Mm -hmm. Further complicating this issue is the question of which mental illnesses should be included as qualifiers for MDO status. As noted before, according to the statute, a severe mental illness is defined as a disease or condition that substantially impairs thought, perception of reality, emotional process or judgment, or which grossly impairs behavior that demonstrates evidence of an acute brain syndrome for which prompt remission, the absence of treatment, is unlikely. Expressly disallowed for MDO status are substance abuse disorders, developmental disorders, and personality disorders. This is interesting since all three of these diagnostic areas meet the core criterion set out by the statute. They are conditions that impair thought and perceptions of reality. They certainly are all unlikely to spontaneously remit without treatment. 
And it is also true that severe substance abuse and certainly personality disorders such as antisocial and narcissistic are strongly correlated with violent reoffending. Research shows that a number of others have found that substance abuse and antisocial personality disorder are much stronger predictors of future violent reoffending than psychotic or mood disorders. It turns out that the presence of a psychotic disorder, treated or not, actually lowers the actuarial risk of violent reoffending below the level of parolees with no diagnosis of a mental disorder. This suggests that the presence of a psychotic disorder could be considered a protective factor for violent reoffending, not a risk factor. The research evidence suggests that if any mental disorders should be considered risk factors for violent reoffending, they should be substance abuse disorders and personality disorders, mm-hmm. which are not which are not which are currently. Not. The question then becomes, what are the most important factors in violent recidivism for inmates with severe mental illness? Well, it turns out that the strongest factors are the same for this population as for any other population of violent offenders. These factors include age of first conviction, number of prison convictions, history of violence, having a diagnosable personality disorder, especially antisocial, a history of substance abuse, and being diagnosable with conduct disorder in childhood. Aside from the problem of high cost of incarceration, there is a question of whether being incarcerated helps or hinders recovery from severe mental illness. By their nature, prisons are stressful places to live. Mm -hmm. I would say stressful is being like very nice. It's probably an awful place to live. And scary. Terrifying. They are not designed to be comfortable, pleasant places to be. And given the nature of the people who are incarcerated, they can often be hostile, if not outright dangerous places to live. Under the best of circumstances, there is a significant lack of freedom of movement, limits to personal decision making, limits to contact or communication with loved ones, and often limits to treatment or recovery services. While some prisons are able to provide substantial mental health services, others are not set up to do so and provide little else beyond psychotropic medication in typical prison house setting. Such conditions are not optimal for treatment and may actually impede the inmate's recovery, thus lengthening his incarceration and adding to the cost to society. Mm -hmm. It can be argued that society has both a moral and practical responsibility to provide treatment for their mental health problems and make reasonable efforts to protect society from future violence. On the other hand, society also has a moral and philosophical responsibility to avoid unwarranted individual confinement and punishment for misbehavior that people have not done yet. While the intention and basic framework of the MDO program makes sense and is morally and ethically appropriate, it would be wise and just to reconsider the factors that are assessed in the process, how those factors are assessed, and how that information is used to make decisions about placement and services for these offenders. To focus on a few basic points, the research points us in the direction of de-emphasizing the role of mental illness in assessment of future dangerousness, to the extent mental illness is considered, includes substance abuse and personality disorders as stronger predictors of violence than psychotic or mood disorders, and lastly, to reconsider the central role of highly restrictive placement, state prison or state hospital, in the treatment of mentally disordered offenders, especially given what we know about successful mental health treatment, the expenses associated with lengthy and highly restrictive placement, and the moral implication of preventative incarceration. So that is the awful story of Alan Alter and a little bit about the MDO program and law Mm -hmm. that exists only in California. I honestly, I'm not sure if there's other programs like this in other 
places in the country. But it was really kind of eye-opening that California has something in place like this Mm -hmm. that we didn't know about. And that really only seems to kind of like this only seems to be scratching the surface. Yeah. And I'm hoping that, you know, with all of the reviews that are going to start because of Alan's case, Mm -hmm. that if there are other people in the system currently that they, you know, that they get their justice, but also that, that these, I feel like there needs to be changes that are implemented soon so that people don't fall through the same, like Alan's, Alan's was pretty straightforward. Like you could say, and you can almost even just like understand how the program was created in 19, I think the law was passed in 1985. The Mm -hmm. program was created in 1986. He was um, arrested in 1986 so it was at the very beginning of this program yeah so you can almost understand how because it was so new they didn't really have a clear outline on what offenses qualified mm-hmm. for the program so like his story seems kind of straightforward and like okay like yes clearly it was a mistake was made yeah but how many people in the mdo program right now might not have fallen through a more complicated crack as far as like is their mental illness really a mental illness that would cause violent offenses in the future like Mm -hmm. that just seems so tricky to predict yeah and clearly based on the research that's been done this doesn't seem to be outlined and addressed in the right ways so it's kind of scary to think that there could be people out there who might enter this program and and just get and stuck for no reason. Yeah, get stuck there and shouldn't have even been been placed there. Mm-hmm. I, I see where the intention was. Uh, there's people in prison right now that shouldn't be in prison. They should be receiving mental health treatments. Um, and there's much better places for them to be instead of prison. But it seems like, and I obviously I don't know anything about this program, so this <laughs> is all assumption on my behalf. Um, but perhaps the idea was there and mm-hmm. they didn't have the time or maybe even the funding to be able to properly assess what's the best way to go about this especially coming from california because i feel like we're very progressive in our thoughts regarding criminal justice a little bit (laughs) more than other states i would say Mm -hmm. so i can see how the idea of this came about Mm -hmm. um, but it still wasn't properly enforced which a lot of programs that we have haven't been properly Mm -hmm. um assessed and planned out Mm -hmm. and revisited to make sure that we're still doing things good and um it it might just come down to the funding and how much research on disorders and mental illness Mm -hmm. hasn't come about since the 80s Mm -hmm. i mean mental illness is something that again like we're we're just scratching the surface on what we know about mental illnesses but from 1986 to now there's been so much that's changed so it is hard to like I have I have a couple problems with this. Like the first one that I just don't know that I can get past is the idea of trying to prevent or trying to punish someone for a crime that they haven't committed yes. that they might not commit. Like that mm-hmm. is just that's hard for me to get past. I do understand that like we might have all of this research and like these risk assessments that would say, well this person has a 90% chance of reoffending. Mm-hmm. Is that like is that 90% enough? Because there's also 10% that says they won't ever do this again. Mm -hmm. So that's hard to get behind. And then also just the fact that it doesn't seem like anyone has taken a a look at this since it was 
created Mm -hmm. to implement the new information that we have about substance abuse and about personality disorders being way more important in predicting future risk and violence than something like schizophrenia, for example, Mm -hmm. which is what Alan Alter was diagnosed with or PTSD. Like, it just seems like there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Whose job is that? Who knows? Everybody seems to be <laughs> blaming, blaming other the other person. So that also seems like there is a lot of uh, unaccountability, uh-huh. I guess you could say, on mm-hmm. who who should be taking the lead on on taking a closer look. Hopefully, you know, Alan's case being brought up and Alan being let out will mm-hmm. shed more light and would will kind of push them to to look at all of this again. But I just thought this was kind of a crazy case that really most people in San Diego probably have no idea that this is I, this I just found on a whim as I was scrolling through Instagram yeah you know and I still haven't heard of it yeah <laughs> so shout out to NBC7 um the article that the only article I could find was written by Tom Jones and Monica Dean they seem to be the two kind of spearheading and following the case okay and then the research paper again the only research paper I could find was by Paul Jenkins, um, and that one again was called MDO Evaluation in California. Those really two were the only sources, sources that you had. I, I could find, and thankfully the research paper was really well written mm-hmm. and insightful. And the NBC Seven article was really great at, like, you know, kind of like giving an inside look at who Alan was, because mm-hmm. a lot of times it could just be like, oh, this you know, seventy-one-year-old veteran, yeah falls through the crack and he's out now and then like that's really all you have they did a really good job at painting a picture of who he was and what happened and and how it happened to him so Mm. thank you to nbc7 and hopefully they can continue pushing for reform (laughs) mdo program reform i don't know what it's called but it's definitely interesting and so anybody out there who maybe has family members who have who are in the system right Uh now might want to just see if maybe their sentence has been extended because they're a part of this program. Yeah. Because based on this article, his family never got to speak to him. In the 24 years that he was in the state hospital, they were never able to get in touch with him. So what? they, yeah, they, why? Because they tried contacting the hospital to set up visitations and they never had their calls returned. They were never told how oh to gosh. go and set up visitation. So it wasn't like in prison where like it's people kind of know and you can get Mm -hmm. get to it like Mm -hmm. this seemed like he was just lost his brother thought he was never going to see him again wow so for 24 years his family had no contact with him that's so sad Mm -hmm. that's so sad like imagine being in there and think like i all i did was start a freaking fire and i've been in this state hospital for 24 years not never to got say to that, see like, my family again never got to see his family but also probably in there with people who really really needed the mental health or like the help from mental professionals mm-hmm. not that he didn't if he was schizophrenic like there's probably help that he could have gotten but there's so many people who are schizophrenic who are on medication and who aren't behind state hospital walls mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. kind of any like, outpatient treatment right and here he is thinking like I'm never going to get out of here. I haven't seen my family. I have no mm. idea how anyone is. And it's just really, really unfortunate. So hope, hopefully, you know, hopefully good comes out of this. And mm-hmm. again, I don't know if it's called reform or whatever, but hopefully someone takes a closer look at this program and realizes that there's improvements that can mm-hmm. be made. Take some responsibility to move forward with it. Yeah. 
because it's not like he can even say he was wrongfully convicted and try and get money for the time that he spent, you know, like compensation for the time Mm -hmm. that he spent behind. This is a completely different kind of wrongful conviction. Mm -hmm. So I wonder how many states might have similar programs. I don't know. Well, thank you for bringing that one to our attention. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this one. Um, If you know of anyone who's currently in there, I mean, maybe contact NBC7. (laughs) Yeah. Tell your story. Tell your story and and see maybe, I don't know. I feel like the more people come out, the Mm -hmm. more push will come from it. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening. I hope you found this interesting. Stay tuned for next week where we'll have another wrongful conviction for you guys to learn about. Maybe. I'll see. I have, I just told stuff. I have a list of cases that I really want to get done. Um, I just can't choose what order to do them in, but stay tuned. I'll bring something next week. (laughs) Um, Follow us on social media. If you haven't yet unjustly podcast, Uh, please rate and review us. Uh, Subscribe to our podcast. We appreciate all of you guys. Um, Email us if you have any questions, comments, or concerns under unjustlypodcast at gmail.com. If you have a case or a story um, that you'd like us to cover, We have a really long list already of cases we want to cover, but we are more than happy to add any cases that you guys want to listen to. Um, We're here for you and we want to learn just as much as you guys want to learn. So thank you for being with us and we'll see you next week. See you next week. Thank you. In fact, assessing future violent recidivism, recidivism, re recidivism. In fact, assessing future violent (laughs) recidivism, recidivism, Recidivism. In fact, assessing future violent recidivism. <laughs> so close. Research show. The question then becomes what are the most important factors in violent recidivism? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>